Good morning, Veritas. Good morning. Man, you guys are so responsive. Like in Iowa City, when I say good morning, it's like crickets, you know, and then you feel weird. Like, did I just get ignored by 400 people? Anyway, you're a responsive group. Is it great having Jake back, by the way? So good. Totally. I uh, got a, a little bit of a chance to hang out with him uh, during a time where he was doing some writing. And you guys, you got to get after it. He's a great writer. Like God has gifted him not just to, to speak well and, and with a great gift of speaking and teaching, but he's got a great gift of writing. So stay on him to keep that thing, that, no, no, die with sabbatical, like keep that thing going. Anyway, just a little hint for you and Jake. Um, guys, this is pretty exciting to get into the book of Genesis in chapter two, but one quick thing, I want to give you an update. Um, I, I've heard all the cool stuff that's going on with you guys and Urbana and that thing kind of falling into your laps and God just doing that. How cool. I don't know if you guys know this, but the same type of thing happened for us. Uh, I want to introduce you in a picture to uh, Veritas Dubuque. This is Veritas Dubuque. How crazy is this? It's so, so fun. So this is actually, um, they're, they're meeting right now, in fact. Uh, this is in a chapel right on the campus of the University of Dubuque. Um, and so they, they've opened their doors for us to be able to do that. So on Wednesday nights, they have Salt Company. Sunday mornings, we gather in the same place. I got there and we saw, you know, started, God started opening these doors. And like, not only do they have windows, they've got stained glass windows. Like we don't even have windows at Veritas. They've got all this, it's just a beautiful place that God has allowed them to, to be able to use. And, and so we're helping them. But it's such a God story that I sincerely feel like somebody else was doing all the planting and cultivating everything. And we're just staying there with a little watering can, just like, pink, you know, and just, this thing just comes to life, you know, like can take no credit, right, for what God is doing there. But uh, anyway, just wanted to let you in on our family's growing. There's some cousins you guys have now up in Dubuque, so pretty sweet. All right, so um, we are in Genesis chapter 2, making our way through this book. Got some exciting news for you this morning. I'm inviting you on a safari, okay? We're going to do a safari together. So um, this is what a safari looks like if you haven't been able to be on one. I I actually spend quite a bit of time in Africa, almost never get to see this kind of thing, certainly never get to see cool animals like cheetahs. Like, this is the thing, guys, that is one of the shyest animals. Like, you could go on dozens of safaris and never get to see a cheetah. And some of the people in that truck are so indifferent, like, oh, no big thing. I'm like, that's a cheetah. Are you kidding? There's like, you could count on one hand the people who have seen those. Have you seen one? Right? So, so what I'm saying is you should at least be afraid of it and not be indifferent. You know what I mean? So anyway, here's what I'm saying. It's unbelievable to be able to go and see these kind of things. Here's, here's the reason I bring that up. Um, as we go through Genesis 2, it's almost going to be like we're on safari. And the, the guide is going to want to point things out and keep us moving and everything else. Don't lose the wonder of these opening pages of the Bible. This is extravagant language. There's spectacular things to see and should change the rest of your life as you see them, okay? So, so let's open to Genesis chapter two. What he actually does on the front end, it's almost like on the front end of a safari, you're still at the lodge in the first couple of verses of Genesis two, and he, the writer is asking you to just to look at the vista of everything that God has just dropped you into. So in, in chapter two, verse one, he says, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, 
And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it he rested from all his work of creation. So this is almost like this moment where after going through all of chapter 1, God invites you to just come alongside him and just gaze at everything he's done. The moon, the stars, the seas, everything all around heavens and the earth. And to just take it in. Right? Stop working. Stop laboring. Just take it in. Enjoy all the goodness that God has given you. You, you guys have this equipping podcast. You should listen to the one on rest, really good, where, where this is also the beginning of this moment where God teaches his people how to rest, how to Sabbath well. That's supposed to be continuing on through his, his people to this day. So anyway, some really good stuff in there. But that's, that's where we just kind of look at all of it and think, wow. And now what he's going to do is he's going to load us up into the Land Rover, right? And, and we're going to jump into this adventure where basically what he's going to do. In fact, look, look at verse 4, very next verse after what we just read. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. So that little start, I'm just going to interrupt the reading there just for a second because his almost repetition of Genesis 1-1 here when we get to chapter 2, verse 4, is actually his clue that he's not telling a whole different story of creation when we get to chapter 2. He's actually going to elaborate on the most, the pinnacle of creation from Genesis 1, where he had said, I'm going to make mankind after my image, after my likeness. He's going to say, okay, that was a really important part. I'm going to come back to that and explain it more fully, right? So he's going to anchor it back in that Genesis 1 kind of language and let's, let's see what we find out in, in now these opening verses. So again, verse 4, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown in the land, no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now that's something to note. Maybe underline that part. That's, that's going to come back to us. No man on the earth to, to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. This is pretty incredible. So in, in chapter 1, all the works of creation were done just by the spoken word, right? God said, let there be light. Let there be stars. And just out of speaking it, it just happened, right? There's the power of his word. Here, though, look at the language that's used about creating Adam. He forms him, he said. The idea of that, it's a beautiful Hebrew word that actually is used of the way that an artist would skillfully and carefully craft and create. So it's a very deliberate, a lot of design and, and, and intention, right, going into this. So he's zeroing in on how he forms mankind, and then I love that, that language there if he breathes into him the breath of life. So if you're in the safari truck, right, and you're in the Land Rover, and you're, you're looking over, you're watching this thing, and God's like shaping and forming, and then all of a sudden with such intimacy, such nearness, right, animates him, not, not with a word passively, but gets right up close and breathes into him, and he awakens. Isn't that unbelievable? Like such... Such care taken to, to describe this creation of mankind. But even before we jump in and get, get back in the Land Rover, um, there's something really important not to miss in this whole thing. So, yes, we learned in Genesis 1 
that mankind is given rulership over all this creation and and uh, we're given dominion and it, it's beautiful how like he's throwing us the keys to the whole thing basically creates everything and then throws us the keys which is which is crazy but don't ever forget guys what he's saying here you too are just a created one you you too just came from the dust don't get all cocky don't overreach on being the head and top of all creation you too are just made from dust and what he's going to say is oh into dust you can return and will return in fact as quickly as i breathed life into you i can take that life back out of you right so i'm just saying there's a soberness to it so it's it's incredible crowning achievement but we don't man we don't take for granted that God has taken such care to create us. In fact, if we never got any further today, this alone should just erupt us in worship. So Psalm 100, I think, is written basically based on, on Genesis 2. Here's a couple of verses out of Psalm 100. The psalmist just declares in worship, know that the Lord, he is God, right? Not me. He is God. It is he who made us and we're his. We're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Like this whole big song of worship is is built right out of Genesis 2, right? Man, we just don't take for granted that God has breathed life into us with such intention. We are created. But also, guys, this creation has been given to us. It's not ours. It's ultimately God's. And we're to, the word for work there in in verse 5 is actually the word to serve. It's a Hebrew word for, we serve creation. Guys, of all the people on the planet, we should cooperate with our creator in taking good care of this good gift that he's given us. We're put here right off to serve this creation. Make sure that it's taken care of well. Okay, so the safari truck, his driver's getting a little animated. He's got to keep us going. So verse 8, Lord God planted a garden in the Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. And the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's almost like he, you know, he kind of jams it into, into first gear and gets us, drives us into this opulent garden. So all of creation is incredible. But now it seems that there's this particular place called Eden. Eden means delight. And you drive into this thing and you start looking around and it's almost like a temple of worship, like this organic temple of worship. And one of the most prominent things that he points out are the trees. Like, guys, trees are going to be a huge theme throughout the Bible. We're going to see trees crop up over and over, crop up, crop up over and over throughout the Bible. In fact, you get to Psalm 1, there's a tree, right? Think about all the way until Jesus. Jesus died on a tree tree right this theme you get all the way to the book of genesis and we're and we're find the tree of life there so big bible theme of of trees and then he's talking about how gorgeous all this is and beautiful and not only are they beautiful to look at and smell wonderful they are they they give us sustenance their food keeps us alive and so this, this connection between us and trees all the way through but he points out two particular trees right one is in the center of the garden. It's the most visible uh, kind of centerpiece of Eden, the tree of life, right? And, and, and for whatever reason, he wants to point at that one. And he wants us almost to be enticed to it. So he placed it right, right there in the middle, in the center. And it should, should be the point that we gravitate most toward that. And then there's this other tree. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I want you to notice something really important in this text. Or maybe notice what's not in this text that sometimes we've read into it. Sometimes, like back in Sunday school, I'm sure not the Sunday school here, but in some Sunday schools out there somewhere, you might find some pictures of this moment and you'll see Adam and Eve standing by this tree that seems like it's bigger than the rest of the trees, more beautiful than the rest of the trees. And it sets this narrative in our minds that says, now why would God do that? Why would God put such an incredible tree that's just like a magnet to my soul to this thing? Did God Was God so cruel that he would make such an appealing, attractive tree? For, no, that's not the narrative here. That's a Sunday school picture. That's kind of stuck in our heads. The picture here is actually, this tree is not bigger than any other tree. It's not in the center. The tree of life is in the center. It doesn't have better fruit. It doesn't have anything. Now, when we get to Genesis 3, the enemy is going to try to whisper that that's true. But it's not true. In the narrative, it's just one of the trees. And guys, we are given horizon to horizon, just acres and miles of luscious, beautiful trees. And if there's any one tree that should attract us, it's the tree of life, right? But the only one that's forbidden is the one tree that's just kind of among scores of other trees called the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only one that's forbidden. So anytime we think, how could God dot, 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 turn that thing right side up and say, no, how could we pick the one tree out of all these, right? Okay, so anyway, Safari Guide's getting anxious and frustrated with me. We got to keep going. He's revving the engine. Verse 10, then a river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided, became the source of four rivers. And the name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. Gold from that land is pure, and Delium and Onyx are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of, of Cush, that goes all the way down into Africa. The name of the third river is Tigris, that runs through Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So, so this moment where the guide is pointing at these rivers and, and it just keeps expanding and going, and it, it, it's just this, again, kind of picture of lush. Like wherever, the, it's like the, the river of life in a way. Wherever it goes, gardens just start growing, right? This river just keeps going and deeper and further uh, into outer, you know, reaches of, of God's creation because water is life, Right? You guys, even our body composition, we are 60% water. Some of our organs, far more, like our lungs are like 85% water. Every time you take a breath in, it's because water has so saturated your lung tissue that you're able to even breathe. So we are so connected to water. And here's these just rivers going out. And, and more than that, rivers are the way that we stay connected even to one another. As, as mankind continues to go out, we can explore and get to know one another and form this one cohesive bond. Because like, guys, even in our own nation's history, how, how do we get from point A to point B almost all the time? How did, how did explorers go out and, and find new territories? The rivers, right? The way you get from here to there is through these rivers. So it's a way to give life and connect us and flourishing through these rivers. And we're going to see those come up again, right? You guys, even John 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, right? I, I, I want to create in you such saturation, such contentment in this river of life that you won't even have to come to a well anymore, right? You get to chapter 7 of John, and and uh, the Holy Spirit is... is, is uh, 
the analogy of like a river flowing through us, bringing us life. So anyway, these rivers are really important. Again, clue thread that's going to follow us all the way through Revelation 22, a river flowing through the middle of the city. Anyway, again, guide's getting mad at us. So, so let's keep going. Verse 15, the Lord took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And now he adds another thing, watch over it. So, Again, you're sitting in the safari truck watching all this and seeing gardens, trees, rivers. And then all of a sudden, he takes that man and just places him right there. And you're sitting there like, whoa, wow, this is so cool. Places him there to work it, to serve it, and then to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So by placing him there, it's, it's one, a, a, a really sweet gift, but it's also a reminder, like, I'm the one putting you here, and I've got a job for you to work. This, this idea, though, that he adds, and to watch over it. It's a beautiful, beautiful Hebrew word. It, it means to, to hover over, to, to take care of something. Like in, in Psalm 121, it, it's used of, of God watching over Israel. It's almost like he's just hovering over, just making sure everything's good. And he's saying to Adam at this point, he goes, hey, I'm giving you the keys to this place, but take care of it. What, he's anticipating what's going to happen in Genesis 3 where an enemy's going to invade, right? It's like, be on watch. Don't turn your back. I'm, I'm giving all this lush, it's, it's gorgeous, but watch over it. And, and, and it's almost like God is saying, hey, and as you watch over the garden, I'll watch over you. So listen to me. There's one tree I need you to stay away from. I'm commanding you now, stay away from that tree. As long as you listen to me, I'll watch over you. You watch over the garden, and this this is going to go gloriously, right? So now the driver's going to say, but hey, listen in. This is really important, what, what's about to come. We've come, I think, to the crowning point. In fact, most of the ink is spilled on this act that's about to happen, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, you know, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. That's a really important word, corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So this, this is pretty spectacular right there. The only way we've seen this little uh, rhythm going is in chapter 1 where God himself said, let there be light. I'm going to call that day. I'm going to call that night. I'm going to call that star. I'm going to call that moon, right? God's the only one that has the authority to own all this stuff and so names it. Here, he's giving Adam the chance to name stuff, like giving him the chance to kind of put his badge on, you know, and, and be the ruler over this thing. Um, pretty crazy. I, I, I still remember, you guys, when I was a kid, way, really young, my, my family got a puppy and they let the punk, like the fifth of five kids, name the thing. And for whatever reason, the next word that came out of my mouth was Buffy. And we named it the, kid, the dog for the rest of its days. I had to go through the name Buffy. I'm like, well, that, that should have been where they removed that privilege, you know, like, no, let's let your brother name him or whatever. But anyway, that's what's going on. Like, Adam, Adam doesn't deserve this spot to be able to name everything. But he's like, no, kid, go ahead. What do you want to name him? Name him anything. Not Buffy. Anything else, you know. Name it giraffe. Um, okay, so verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, every wild animal. But for man, no helper was found corresponding to him. There's that word again, corresponding to him. 
And I see, I, I see two, you know, deer, and I see two pheasant, and I see two lions. But man, there's we're, nothing like me. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place, and then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this one, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So, and you guys, this lavish, extravagant language about bringing Adam and Eve, man and woman, together, the first marriage. So why is so much intention given to the way that God did this? He didn't just passively speak all this into happen. He made it, had orchestrated this whole kind of pageant. What, what's with this? Well, guys, as I've spent a lot of time just meditating on this passage this last couple of weeks, I think one of the first things I don't want to lose is this. God is the ultimate gift giver. Guys, God is the ultimate gift giver. All this extravagance, if nothing else, see in the backdrop this idea that God loves giving good gifts to his children. He's setting up this whole moment just so he can be like the big reveal. Like when my kids were little, sometimes for birthdays or Christmas, sometimes I'd have them go on a scavenger hunt before they'd actually get to the gift. You know what I mean? To just heighten their, you can see what's going on here, anticipating this heightening of, of the moment that he's going to give this good gift. Um, just a few weeks ago, my, my little grandson Grafton had a birthday and he loves making rivers by that, taking his dad's hose, garden hose, and like channeling water through the backyard, which is Probably kind of naughty on one level, adorable if you're the grandparent. So I decided for his birthday to give, I went to Menards and I got like tiling and some gutter stuff. And I opened the car. I'm like, it's river day, Grafton. And he's like, yeah, you know, and my, my son's like, thanks, dad. Appreciate, you know, you messing up my lawn with my kid. I'm like, yeah, that's what grandpas do. So anyway, I'm just saying that moment of seeing Grafton like, you know, just, oh, I couldn't wait to get that, you know, all the piping going and all this stuff. Here's what I'm saying. Good fathers follow the example of this good father. He wants us to know he loves giving good gifts to us, you guys. He's not just some absentee creator, just some boss, some authority figure. He's in love with us. He loves bringing good gifts to us. Let, let that just kind of resonate and sit in the backdrop of everything else that's going on. But secondly, I think one of the chief things that we're supposed to learn about ourselves is, guys, no man is an island. We are all of us incomplete in and of ourselves. And I'm not talking about what happens after sin, after Genesis 3. I'm talking about in the design of the creator from the beginning. We have an incompletion about us, something that's lacking, that that we still need. This idea of corresponding to that I pointed out a couple of times earlier, that we need somebody that's corresponding to us in the ESV that a lot of you uh, read and, and are taught from the, the language is fit for him. Someone that is fit for him because nothing else quite fit him, right? Intentionally designed with inadequacy. So here we're seeing it, especially in marriage. And if this were a whole marriage conference, we'd, we'd spend more time here on how Man and women are not to be the same as, but, but different than, intentionally different than, so that we would 
correspond, like something you don't have, they bring to the table and vice versa. And it, it's actually a, a means of co- being cohesive and together. But guys, this thread is going to continue all the way through our Bibles. Even things like the church is supposed to display this incompletion of why we need one another. You get to like 1 Corinthians 12, right? And Paul is going to say, oh yeah, you've all got gifts, but you don't have all the gifts. The only way you get to experience all the gifts is when you get into a collective called the church and then what you don't bring to the table, somebody else brings to the table and, and always by you know, holding this thing together do we really display the greatness and glory of our God. We see this in friendships and in all sorts of ways throughout the Bible, but this idea that we're created so that we would have a need not just for God, but actually for each other, right? Especially right here in, in, in marriage, but in all sorts of ways through his creation. Now, I do want to say... Uh, to some of the eaves, some of the women in the room. There's that word helper in here. And sometimes you can have this kind of visceral like helper. What? I, I, I want to help you out with this word helper because it's actually a really beautiful Hebrew word and Hebrew concept. It, it's not in any way subservience. There are Hebrew words for subservience. This isn't it. This word helper is actually this idea of partnership. It's, it's this idea. In fact, God uses this word for himself. Again, I talked about Psalm 121 earlier, where at the beginning of the Psalm, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? There's our word help come from. Oh, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. God himself is our helper. God is the one who's going to come and walk alongside us. God is the one who's going to partner with us. God is the one who's not going to leave us solo, but walk with us and help us along the way. So what I'm saying is he's talking about this beautiful partnership. What he's saying is I've given this big garden and now, Adam, you're going to have somebody working alongside you to to cultivate and, and, and keep care of the garden. And when it comes time for bearing children and having family, this isn't that's not woman's work. No, this is going to be a cohesive partner or together we're going to be flourishing and we're going to be in this together, right? It's marriage is this beautiful, glorious coming together of two different people that just match each other in beautiful ways for the flourishing. So this helper idea. Now, I want to say quickly that that does not in any way detract from the, the, the real responsibility that men are given to lead the responsibility that they have, right? So, for instance, right in this text, when did the command about that tree come to Adam? Before Eve was even on the scene, right? He was given the responsibility. Now, of course, he was supposed to communicate that to Eve or whatever, but the ultimate responsibility we're going to find out through the rest of the Bible was given to Adam at that point. So this doesn't take anything away from the way that's consistent where men are called upon to be responsible. It happened with Israel, with the church and the family, etc. But God's design is one that calls us toward completeness and partnership where together, back from Genesis 1 even, we bear the image of God in maleness and femaleness together, right? That's what he's describing here. By the way, what's with the rib thing? (laughs) Isn't that kind of a, like, whoa. He actually cuts into the dude, right, and rips something out. But but you get the idea that there's no scarring. There's there's no, it it ends up being a beautiful thing. He's not coming into that moment, you know, because still holding on to his side. It's this beautiful moment. I, I think part of what's going on is God puts Adam to sleep, not because he needs 
anesthesia, <laughs> you know. No, he probably would if he's going to get ripped open. But, uh, but I don't think that's it. I think it's more God saying, ultimately, the best gifts are going to come from me and not from you working. I didn't say to you, Adam, hey, I, I see there's nothing corresponding to you. Why didn't you go make one? Why didn't you go whip something up? No, no, no. God's like, I'm just going to put you to sleep, and I'm going to bring you that good gift, right? I'm going to be the so, – so we need to wait on God. Let God be the one that, that brings the good gifts to us. Don't force that. Don't make that happen of our own. There's also one of the, I, I got this quote from Matthew Henry. Some of you have maybe heard this before, but Matthew Henry was way back in the 17th century, a pastor, and he wrote this. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head so as to rule over him, nor out of his feet so as to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. So old dead guys, they knew what they were talking about. So that's the rib. All right, the last thing I want to bring up as we... As again, we're in this safari kind of Land Rover. And, and one other thing I think the driver really wants to point out to us is this. Guys, we can't miss this. God wants mankind to honor marriage. God wants mankind to honor marriage. So strong is the bond of marriage that even the bonds of parenting are to give way, right? That's right there in the, te- in the text. As, guys, as... as close as I am to my children, when it came time for three of my four uh, are married now, when it came time for them to get married, this is where Teresa and I back out, right? And it's time for them to form a family. And we stay in the orbit. We stay, we stay close, but you know what? That's a new family. That's the new unit that's to be protected and nurtured. That's how strong you can't imagine as a parent that there would be that moment where you would actually back out of the relationship and appropriately we back out of the relationship in a way that just says, no, this, this is to be honored. This, this is to be protected, right? So here, here's what I want to say, church. Guys, all of us know that God's good design in Genesis 1 and 2, especially when it comes to things like gender and now we're talking about marriage, is under attack, right? We know that people that don't, follow the design, follow the designer, come out on the attack of some things that are to us so foundational, so like second nature to the way things ought to be, and yet those things are disputed. But here's, here's what I want to say. Guys, we got to stop being shocked by that and imagine that we're encountering something that has never happened on the face of the earth. Guys, since Genesis 3, marriage and family has been under attack. Flip the page to Genesis 4, and you've already got a dude singing songs about having a bunch of wives. Like in, in absolute, absolute rejection of the way that God designed marriage to be. So I'm just saying, since Genesis 3, every culture everywhere has been disputing this very thing. Don't be shy. We're not the first ones to encounter a, a culture that's against what we see as so foundational of marriage, right? So here's here's my... Here's my appeal. Let me just put my, my dad hat on for a minute, okay? My father, pastor perspective. Guys, I don't think that the world right now needs to see a church all enraged and all mad and getting red-faced and grabbing pitchforks and torches because of what they're doing about marriage out there. I Honestly, you know what I think the world really needs? 
a church that reawakens to the glory and the mystery and the awesomeness of what marriage is. Right? Yes, guys, Rome is burning all around us. Rome has been burning all around us since Genesis 3. (laughs) Now, we can be aware of that and point at that and understand what we're up against, but guys, you know where the real work has to start? In here. (laughs) And not just in here, in here, right? We've got to fall in love again with the designer and the good, good God that's brought all this to us and recapture the wonder of his design and creation and say, God, I don't know what's going on out there, but I know in here, I got to love my wife. I got to love my husband. I got to protect marriage. I got to protect family. I got to protect the way you designed it to be. Because when you do it, things are awesome, right? Things are as they should be when you are the one pulling it together. So what I want to do, guys, is uh, I actually want to have us spend a bit of time in prayer. Because here's what I know. There is not a soul in this room that has not been impacted by just the vandalism of these basic principles of marriage and the the beauty of when we really believe how incomplete we are and we need each other. And it said pride and viciousness. Some of you have had marriage, family, get eroded right before your eyes. Maybe you've been the perpetrator. Maybe you've been the victim or something, both, you know. Here's what I know, guys. That, too, was expected by God. He saw that coming. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ to us. Guys, Jesus came to us, and it was actually never married, right? You know what Jesus demonstrated? That true wholeness and completeness was never going to come, even by the best of marriages. It was going to come as we have peace with God. And he brought us peace with God. We're going to have communion here in a few moments. And that's our time to really just absolutely fall in love again with the one who said, yeah, I see what you've done to this. I've seen what you've done to that. I've seen how you've actually kind of messed up everything. This whole idea of Genesis 1 and 2, everything being just as it was supposed to be. Yeah, you've pretty much messed with all of it, right? But I love you so much. I'm going to cross the gap of your brokenness. I'm going to cross the gap of everything you've done to mess this whole thing up. And I love you so much. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to die so that I can restore you back to myself. I want to start rebuilding. What you've torn down, I want to start rebuilding. The the way that you, by your own hands, have kind of pulled the house down on your own head, yeah, I, I want to help restore and bring back and bring peace. And it starts with peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, I love what St. Augustine said so many centuries ago, but so beautifully. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you, right? This restlessness is not going to be satisfied by finding the right man or woman, fixing the broken marriage, all that. We, we, may, may God bring grace in all those areas. Ultimately, God, guys, God wants you. And our peace with him can come because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why we're going to celebrate him today and keep all of our full attention on him. So will you stand with me actually as I have us pray together?
Jesus, you're looking down. Man, this room is just full of a lot of mess. And we just declare it openly and freely. We feel the scars and the pains of what others have done to us, Lord. But then quickly we're reminded of what we've done to others. And we just say to you, Lord, it's not as it should be. This, this is not as it should be. Thank you, God, that you didn't just get frustrated and just walk away from us because that's, that's what we would have done. But you didn't. In fact, even while we were still sinning, you came and died for us. Even when we were still running, you came after us. So God, with the psalmist, we just want to declare because of what you have done, Jesus, we can once again say, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. And we're going to enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. So Jesus, welcome us to this table. This table of forgiveness and wholeness and salvation and hope. Jesus, we love you. And we're so grateful for all that you've taught us. Now help us to live it out because we can now because you've come for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.